The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for joining us. Later in the podcast, we take the temperature of the art market in New York Auction Week. But first, Anselm Kiefer. The German artist has a new show at the White Cube Gallery in London, and typically he's taking on big subjects, this time the scientific concept known as string theory. Characteristically, Kiefer explores this mathematical model in both sculpture and painting, and within a much broader cultural and historical framework, linking back to ancient mythology. Our contemporary art correspondent, Louisa Buck, went to White Cube to meet him. So Anselm, the title of this exhibition that fills White Cube in Bermondsey is Superstrings, Runes, Norns, Gordian Knot. I mean, that's quite a line-up for starters. But let's just zero in on the superstrings. This particular body of work is largely underpinned by your recent explorations in string theory. Can you just talk a bit about what's brought you to string theory and why you've you know, I, I, I did these paintings about my desperation. I cannot understand string theory. It's so complex and so difficult. And um, I'm not a mathematician. And um, um, I read about since, I think, 25 years, perhaps, I read about the string theory in, in uh, magazines. Uh, one magazine I have, it's called um, Spectrum. And there are all the new discoveries in mathematics, chemistry, physics, and and I'm really fascinated because it's such a vast knowledge who, who develops there, and um, and and I can always see the connection between the old myth and the new uh, future explorations in in physics, for example. But string theory, as far as I know, I have very little limited knowledge of, of, of these things, but it, it hasn't actually been empirically proven by rules or formula yet. It's still up for interpretation. Not one formula is proven by, by experiments. You know, when normally uh, phys- physicians, they, they have an idea, they have an intuition, uh, like Einstein had in 1907 or so. Um, and they have a new idea about the world, about the con- context of the world. And then it takes time until it's proven by experiments. And in the case of Einstein, it was proven once, I think 10 years later or so. And then he got the Nobel Prize because then they thought it's a genius, you know. <laughs> but concerning the string theory, nothing is proven. Is that what appeals to you, the fact that it, it started with intuition and it hasn't actually been hammered down into a set of rules? You know, in the art, nothing is provable. You cannot prove, you cannot prove by deduction that this painting is the best or is better than the other. You, you, you cannot. You, you, you can pretend. And art is pretension. It's not proof, you know. There's a sort of almost like a literal illustration of strings literally there wrought in these 30 enormous vitrines four meters high that run down the central corridor of white cube full of a tangled mass of wires cords all kinds of of industrial wiring forming strings intertwined and then with mathematical theories also written on the on the glass is this your kind of literal attempt to give some kind of expression to this intuitive tangle of unresolved theory you know it's a kind it's naive you know, 
when when you are naive, you have a big advantage. You can do what you want, you know. And it's I heard about strings, and <laughs> I, I studied a little bit the mathematics, and then I had by accident I bought my neighbor. There was an industrial place, and there. So you bought a new property. Yeah, and there was all this this electric stuff in, you know. And they said, don't throw it away. They know they have not to throw anywhere, anything away. And I thought, that's my strings, you know. That's my, this is a string. It's naive, you know. But then I had later, uh, when I had already done some paintings, there came a mathematician. He, he came in, in my studio and he said, that's it. Can you imagine a mathematician about string theory? I liked it, you know. I, I didn't need this to prove that my paintings are, <laughs> are something, but it, it was a nice, nice um, accident, no? So also, with your tangle of strings, you also bring in references to ancient Nordic um, figures, the Norda, the spinners of fates, and also ancient runes, ancient letters as well. So you're still weaving in, literally, as well as metaphorically, mythologies as well as science. Since I started to work, I saw that all the myths you can find in the north, in Egypt, in Siberia, in the Balkan, they're all connected, you know. And you can even prove how certain um, peoples traveled through Siberia, coming to Europe, um, how they brought their myths with them, how they was modified by other myths. And this is fantastic, you know. It's something everywhere. It's like the strings, you know. It's everywhere you have the myth, and they are all connected and interfering. So how important, how important is it for people coming to this exhibition? I mean, how much do they need to know? Do they need to know anything you about know, I, 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 mythology? I, I, I always say you have nothing to know. Look at the paintings. And if you are attracted in a way, then, then you, can, you can study But it's not necessary to have studied before. First, the painting has to have a certain, um, a certain impetus, certain brilliance, you know. And then, I, I know a lot of people who, who study now the Kabbalah and uh, the, the, the alchemy, and, and uh, that's, that happens, you know. But it's not necessary to be, to be touched by. And the scale of your work is always colossal and in these works absolutely so i mean there's one work that the ramanujan summation which fills up an entire room and scale seems to be a very crucial part for you to draw in the viewer to draw you in know, scale has nothing to do with quality nothing no the scale has not so much importance it's it's more a physical thing you know i'm 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 physical, I'm, I'm working, I'm dancing in front of the painting and so, and I can tell you, these are medium-sized paintings. I have in my studio paintings, they don't fit in here. So, what I like very much, because they, they cannot sell them. <laughs> Throughout these new works, we see nets, runic forms, references to the string theory, but always over the top of these apocalyptic, bleak, 
barren landscapes. This seems to be so much part of your language now that you know we associate you with them. I know you've done landscapes with flowers and other things, but these barren, bleak landscapes that we see here in this exhibition seem to be so much part of your practice. What is it about this particular imagery that really oh, makes I, you come back I, to it I again and again? I think they're extreme fertile, my landscapes. Gro- growing everywhere something, no? Well, it's pretty dead, the ones in this show. They look pretty <laughs> for, burnt for and dead. You it, for you it's dead. For me... Burning something is resurrection, you know. My paintings, they suffer a lot, you know, because uh, they are desperate like me, like me. But, but then they, they, they have another uh, resurrection, you know. You know, there's a, there's a philosopher I like so much, it's Andrea Emo. And he says the, the true artist has to be iconoclast. Breaking means al- already resurrection. And also, you've talked a lot about alchemy being so crucial to your work, the making of base material into here art rather than gold, although you do use gold. And I see these works very much as being a part of that, particularly your new vitrines that are full of the kind of rubbish of this new property that you've, you've acquired being made into art. Yeah. No, alchemy is um, a permanent transformation of material. And it's a very dangerous process, you know, because this was this is chimneys, chimneys, and had a lot of accidents and stuff. And in the books you can read, it doesn't mean to make gold out of lead. It's not materialistic; it's spiritual, you know. And um, but it has it had nevertheless economic, physical effects. And your materials with which you make your art, have become very much associated with you. Lead, straw, gold leaf. Why do you keep returning to these very similar materials again and again? I mean, we think of you when we think of lead, we think of straw, we think of sunflowers, these very particular types of physical material, as well as paint. You cannot say to to a painter, why you use always red and green and yellow? It's there, no? I use material who has the spirit inside, you know? I don't, I'm not a Platonist. You think there is a a theory, there is a a system, and this system gives form to the material. I think in the material is already the spirit. And so, for me, lead has spirit, and I know it because... um, I discovered it by accident in my house because I had lead pipes and I was immediately fascinated. And I didn't know nothing about alchemy. I was very young, I was 20 years old or so. And, um, but there I see some, some spiritual uh, impact. And they're very physically evident, these materials. I mean, in, these, in the works here in White Cube, there's sticks there's straw, they're falling off sometimes, almost, the paintings. Yeah. They seem to be in a state of, you know, about to leap off and re-enter the world. They, they move all the time. You don't see it immediately, but they move. So the works are always unstable. Absolutely. And that's important for you. Yes. You know, you cannot fix a painting on a certain state. It always moves. How important is it for you to be physically making? I mean, these works, obviously you have many assistants, these are enormous works, but you work no, no, on no, no, all no, of them no, yourself. No, wait a moment. I, I paint myself. All of them? Yeah. When I put the, the, the branches on, I have someone behind to, who fix them, you know, the, 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 but I put it and I paint. So no, 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 I do, do the work. 
But you're, you were born in 1945, yeah. so you were steeped in the ruins of the Second World War. And you know, when, when I was born, um, I was born in the cave of the hospital, you know, because there was a lot of air rats. And then in, the, in this night, our house was bombed. Can you imagine? <laughs> and they told me, that's really, that's really a grotesque, The sewing machine, you know, later I worked with this sewing machine. The sewing machine was standing upright on the trottoir. On the, the house was down. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's fantastic, you don't think so? Do you still feel to a great extent you are still playing in the ruins of our society, the ruins of Europe, the way in which things you are know, turning I think at the moment? a writer said once to me, all what you do goes back to the childhood. You know, all, you, you, you compare all with your experience then, because then the experiences are the most deep ones. And um, I think, yes, I'm, I have my playground in Bajak. And also your, your playground in Bajak, 200 acres, and also your playground in the north of Paris as well, another vast, vast studio in the old Samaritaine warehouse These are almost, it seems to me, like artworks themselves as well as studios, certainly in Barjac. Why is that so important for you to make these environments around yourself? No, I think um, a painting alone, a painting needs a realm. Yeah, a painting needs a realm. For this reason, I, I forbid to all my galleries to show my work on art fairs because they are, they are put together and they, they kill each other, you know? And normally they, they, they follow me. But there are other galleries who bought it somewhere else and show it. And I cannot, but my galleries, they don't do it. And um, <clears throat> I think it's all a process, you know. Um, in in Bajak, it, I have a, a lot of buildings with paintings, with watercolors, with sculptures. And, the, and it changes all the time. So I change from this to this. And so, so it's... it's, um, it's a big movement all the time. And also you have the actual spaces, amphitheater in Barjac, there's towers, so in a way they feed into the work and then also are expressed as works in and of themselves. Yeah, the, 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 these uh, works, the, the, I, I made them like paintings, the, the, the big towers. I just started a little bit and then um, it was going on and, and on and then I destroyed it and I re, re reconstructed it. It's, it's like to do a painting. So since the early 90s, you've, you've lived in France, not in Germany, but you're still very much associated as a German painter dealing with, even though you've drawn all these vast range of mythologies, people still associate you very much with a German painter dealing with a sort of German imagery. Is that a problem for you? Do you feel constrained by that? No, 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 because I'm German. <laughs> I do. I cannot be, and I don't want to be a Norwegian or whatever. No, no, that's it's. And if you wouldn't recognize me as a German, then I wouldn't be authentic, you know. I, I, I will perhaps. I, I try to do um, to build a house, a studio next to the Rhine on the German side, and the other one on the. On the French side, that's the Alsace, you know, they speak half French, half German. And perhaps a boat who goes um, would be nice, no? Well, we need something similar in the UK at the moment. You're having a show here at a very, very problematic 
difficult time in, in Britain, to put it mildly. I mean, you're famously very in favour of a united Europe. You see yourself as a German, but also very much as a European. So how do you feel at the moment in this current situation? One of your paintings actually does refer, does it not, to the European Parliament? Yes, but one painting shows uh, 1,000 empty seats. And uh, this, this, I, I took this, this, this image from my uh, former university where I studied law. And um, so, um, may, but I, I thought I made this like this because I thought a string theory is all about instability. There's no fixed point. It all moves. And when you look at the quarks, they move differently if you, do, if you, if you don't look. So it's all a, a symbol of instability. And then this European Parliament, this is really a symbol of instability too. And you are in England at the moment, which is at one of its most unstable phases in living memory. Yeah, but, you know, other countries are unstable too. You know, East Germany, we have problems, then in, in Hungary, Poland. It's, it's a very strange time now. And in America, we don't know what will happen. And uh, so um, I'm not pessimistic, not optimistic. I see the things... From another, from another point, <laughs> I see that uh, what happens happens all the time, and um, I I studied so much mythological uh, material that I can say, in in certain times, for example, in geological times, all what can happen happens because there is enough time. So if I would have enough time all would be possible. These paintings at White Cube appear immensely apocalyptic, bleak, but you also say they are about resurrection and growth. Do you see them as actually perhaps having some kind of comment on the times in which we are living, which are so turbulent and so full of no, problems? No, no, I think the being and the non-being, the nothingness, I don't see them in a chronologic way. I see them in the same time, you know. When I start the painting, it's for me already the negation of the painting. So I cannot be stressed by my paintings. You know, it, it's, it's like it is, you know. But your exploration of string theory, your exploration of the connection of string theory with myths and these different myths of the deep past, it seems like a sort of investigation is trying to show the interconnectedness of things. Yeah, but also perhaps to, to, to try and explain what does hold us all together. Are you trying to do that? Yeah, I try always to find the, the formula of the world. I, I, I try to do the last painting, you know, but <laughs> I will not succeed, you know, but I try. Well, that seems like a perfect note on which to end. Thank you very much, Anselm. Thank you for coming here. Anselm Kiefer's exhibition, Superstrings, Runes, The Norns, Gordian Knot, is at the White Cube Gallery until the 26th of January 2020. We'll be back at the New York auctions after this. The artist Paul Nash is renowned for visceral depictions of the horrors of trench warfare during the First World War. His earliest images of the war, however, were painted in spring 1917 on convalescent leave. He'd tripped in the dark and broken a rib. These works were altogether gentler in tone, though by no means sugar-coated. 
The work Leaving the Trenches, offered at Bonham's Modern British and Irish Art Sale in London this month, is from a batch of drawings that Nash exhibited in London's Goopal Gallery in May 1917. Bonham's Director of Modern British Art, Christopher Dawson, explains the work in the Goupil exhibition reflected the artist's limited experience of the war at that time. He'd only been in France for a few weeks before his accident. Even so, it had an immediate impact on a public starved of realistic images of life at the front and led to the appointment of Nash as an official war artist. These early war works by Nash are scarce. Most of them are in public collections, and so the emergence of leaving the trenches at auction is a significant event. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, it's one of the biggest moments in the art calendar, New York Auction Week. Our Deputy Art Market Editor, Margaret Carrigan, has been at the auctions all week and was joined by Scott Rayburn, who writes for the art newspaper as well as the New York Times, to discuss this week's events and what it tells us about the market at the end of a remarkable decade. So, Scott, you are a art market veteran, very skilled at surveying this rocky terrain that we all traverse. <laughs> Can we not use the word veteran? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, you know, there's been a uh, squeeze on consignments mm. this, this season, um, and they're down about 25% going into the week sure. this week. On top of that, confidence is low. Mm. I think Art Tactics said that it's down about about 20% just since May. Sure. How are we seeing play out, that play out this week in the sales? Okay. In terms of the actual results, um, we've seen a big drop. Um, impressions and modern sales at Christie's, were following on from last May, uh, Christie's were down 52%. Sotheby's was down 40%. And then last night at Christie's, so the contemporary sale, down 40%. Now, what everyone in the art market says, or certainly in the New York art market says, said, ah, well, the thing is, the right people hadn't died. We didn't, <laughs> the right people didn't get divorced. Uh, it's all going to be fine next year because the MacLeod divorce consignment will come in. That's at least 700 million. So everything's fine. Um, and so you have, essentially have this, this mentality of a goldfish going around a bowl. And so that, the goldfish goes around the back and the view's not so great, but you go around the front, oh, that's fine. And everything is the same. And that, in a sense, is the big question about the art market. Is it the same? Is it all going to be fine? Is there a status quo that just continues and continues and continues? Um, the key thing is demand. Everyone talks about supply and saying, well, if the right supply comes along, the figures will be great, it'll be fine. I actually, I think this is a big question, but I just wonder about supply. Uh, because Artnet did a very, very interesting report which showed that when you look at total auction sales over the last 10 years, um, the high, when you adjust for inflation, um, was in 2011. That's $6.9 billion dollars. Since then, totals haven't even got within a billion. So essentially, it's the, the whole market is treading water. At the same time, if you look at wealth reports, uh, the number of billionaires since the financial crisis since 2009 has doubled. Uh, now, there are any number of wealth reports, but the, one, uh, one of the most recent put the wealth of 
billionaires. This is just billionaires. This is not multimillionaires. Just billionaires. Nine trillion. So billionaires are spending less than 0.1% of their disposable wealth on art, which is a minute amount. Now, why hasn't the art market got further traction? The art, when you walk around the art market and say, oh, there are so many p- new people coming into the market, they're flooding in. You go to the auctions, you go to the art fairs, you see exactly the same people. You see one or two new faces. So what is concerning about the art market is everyone feels, oh, it's fine. Things just carry on as normal. But all the time, more and more wealthy people aren't buying art. And this is a, yeah, the art market has any number of elephants in the room, but that's one of the bigger elephants. So actually, demand is not increasing. And that is a concern. So this raises two questions for Mm. me, which is, one, the reliability of auctions as the kind of benchmark of how the art market is doing. This is notoriously a a fraught thing. Um, So I think when we're... When we're looking at a slow season like we are mm. right now in mm. New York, I wonder how much we can temper our expectations when you're saying like we're treading water. Isn't that better than declining necessarily? But then at the same time, you're saying we are have been in decline, like numbers have been in decline since 2011. So I, I guess it's how do we how do we square that circle there? What I would say is that if, if you look at, for example, this series of sales, uh, the, the so-called gig week, I hate that phrase around us, <laughs> but, but this so-called marquee series of sales, if you look at the numbers, uh, to the, in, they start in 2014, and that was the great season where the, the Picasso, Femme d'Alger, that made $2.2 billion. Then we had a high um, of $2.3 billion in 2017. In 2016, it was down to 1.1. But essentially, these sales are in a band of roughly 1.8 to 2.2 billion. This this season may be down. But that, to my mind, is that's treading water. You know, those, I know statistics lie all the time, but they're difficult to, it doesn't indicate that the needle is moving to me. And what kind of repercussions do you think that's going to have for the art market as a whole? If if we're just looking at the auctions now, okay, um, where do you th- where do you think that points us going forward? Well, the thing is that uh, I was at the impressions of modern sales. Now I'm old enough to remember 1980 sales where all the Japanese and the black tie, that, which was the old Peter Wilson model. He he really really changed the art market with the gold China sale back in 1957, I think it was, 58, I think one. That completely changed the nature of the art market. And it's essentially been the same model since then, evening sales to create as much international interest as possible. Then you go to an Impson Mod sale now, and it's a very, very, very different thing. Um, It's full of people of a certain age. You don't see young people at all there. Um, The material, of course, because it's been so heavily traded, uh, there's very little fresh material. Um, there'll be one or two lots in an evening that fly. For example, the Sotheby's had a really beautiful Giacometti bust of Diego that had sensational patination and it was great cast and that went nuts. It went well. It made three double the estimate of about 13.5, didn't it? That's a great object. But that's just one lot. You were there in the room. You know, lot after lot after lot sells to... 
uh, a single bid to Asia or a Russian. Um, I don't know how long these people are going to prop that end of the market up. And then when you look at the numbers, uh, as an investment vehicle, that's particularly interesting because at, at Christie's, that top lot was that, that lovely Magritte Nocturne. Now, that seemed to do pretty well. It made 19.5 with premium. But the seller had bought it privately five years before for 21. And if you drill into the numbers with uh, particularly the impressions of modern, they're quite concerning because people aren't making money out of it. And if people... We lit, we're in a market where people actually, most people don't care about the art. They just want to make money out of it. And as soon as they stop, stop making money, that is going to be a moment of concern. Can we talk a little bit about the post-war and contemporary hmm. market? Because we're halfway through those sales sure. this week. We've got Sotheby's tonight. Christie's was sure. last night. But Christie's was equally as maybe concerning as the earlier sales hmm. this week. Um, like you said, 40%. Um, down and also 40% of the lots went hammered on their low estimate or sure. below. Yeah. Um, so it just shows that even though, even on a leaner season that there, that people really aren't um, getting out their pocketbooks no. for this kind of work anymore. And um, while there are a few records set last night um, for Charles White and sure. Alma Thomas and Ellsworth Kelly and, um, of course, the... Uh, Ed Ruscha. Ed Ruscha. Yeah, thank you. I wonder with... As you're saying, the, the if people aren't making money and, and contemporary art has been so hyped up over mm. the past five years, especially as yeah. a really uh, as an asset class, as we kind of reach this new plateau, do you think that that demand will suffer there too and that we will see the, the financialization chat around contemporary art slip? Well, it's always worth looking at the, the day sales, isn't it? Because in a sense, that's where the action is. Um and there's a fascinating sort of what I call a spin cycle there, where you have artists who are really, really hot. Everyone wants to buy them. Um, I spoke to a dealer who, um, Josh Lilly, who had a Derek Forjour show in London. Um, he said he had 400 people wanting to buy that work. Oh, my God. 400. Um, so I, I poked around the results on the day sales and... The Chabalala self bandwagon keeps on going along. You know, there was a, piece, a very strong work actually. Um, estimated at 80, made 350. Um, now, I've actually spoken to her about this. She's, you might be, or she's very concerned about this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an incredibly difficult and worrying syndrome. Young artists being churned over because there's just, it's like, it's like a washing machine, isn't it? There's a spin cycle. Um, and if you have the right connections and you're rich enough, you get in at the beginning and then you get out in time. Um, and the rest is desperate to try and buy the work. And usually they buy it too late and they get lumbered with it. And it's, uh, and this, this whole cycle, this whole dynamic is very concerning for the market as a whole. I think, um, with calls, it's just bonkers. Uh, yeah, and you had a really interesting piece that you mm. actually wrote for for the art newspaper mm. recently, which is about kind of like populist mm. art and mm. populist taste in art. Um, how how has that maybe shifted over the past few years, and how is that affecting the market for these younger artists? Uh, I'm just wondering to what extent those two worlds intersect. 
I think Banksy and cause a very, very sort of separate markets from the super, uh, super hot markets for young anointed artists from fashionable galleries. I think that's slightly different. Um, I wonder how long the cause thing is going to go on for. I'm not sure. You know, the sculpture is particularly interesting. There was a, a, a big painted sculpture uh, from an edition of 10 plus 2. It was estimated at 300, made 836,000. Yeah. Um, that, the sculpture, the paintings I sort of understand, but the sculpture I just find completely anonymous and mad. Why is that? Well, you bought this thing, and then in five years' time, you're going to be looking at it and think, this is losing me a lot of money. Why the <laughs> hell did I buy that? And it's big and sitting in the corner and making you look a fool. Yeah. <laughs> I think, um, speaking of Cause and Banksy, um, you know, we're obviously coming to the end of 2019 here, mm. moving into a new decade. Sure. Their markets have been the most astronomical maybe sure. in the last decade. Yeah. Are there some other artists that, you know, have had a miraculous rise or a miraculous fall in some ways over the past decade or any larger trends that you've been noticing since, you know, obviously okay. we were in a very different financial place sure. back in 2009, right after mm. the financial crash. And now we're kind of staring down the barrel of a possible recession. There's, sure. there's all trade wars, Brexit, the whole shebang. Sure. So I just wonder if you're seeing any kind of trends that you can spot okay. based on the last 10 years. The, the first thing to say, though, of course, is that, that there's no... Um, the people who buy art aren't losing any money. Right. Yeah. They're getting richer and richer and richer. Um, the thing that the context for all this is... is uh, Thomas Piketty wrote this great book called Capital in the 21st Century, and he came up with this wonderful formulation, which is R is always greater than G. So re- uh, returns on capital are always greater than growth, which is linked to wages. So the rich are going to get richer and richer and richer. So the money is all there. They just they just get distracted sometimes, <laughs> and they're a bit distracted at the moment. Mm-hmm. And that's 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 the only problem in a way. But what is a problem for the art market is um, blue chip art and finding new blue chip artists. Um, because, uh, well, very interesting, going back to this Artnet report, I was staggered to see that in the first half of 2019, Cause made more at auction than Jean-Michel Basquiat. Wow. Which is a bit of a moment. Uh, (laughs) Now, obviously, owners of of, uh, big ticket Basquiat don't want to put them on the market at the moment. They're they're concerned. Okay, that's understood. But with with Basquiat, top Basquiat's not coming on the market, Warhols, Coons, the traditional blue chip, where are the auction houses going to make the numbers? So what I have noticed is the way they're trying to pump up secondary names as blue chip. And in London in October, Albert Olin suddenly was meant to be a great artist. Mm-hmm. So we had two dealer shows. We had the Serpentine Gallery exhibition, which was sponsored by Sotheby's and Gagosian. <laughs> and there was a load of Albert Olin in the sales, which did all right. Mm-hmm. It didn't actually have a transformative effect. I think Ed Ruscher last night was another example of this. Yeah. Um, now, he's an interesting artist, you know, academically and in terms of art history. But in terms of pop art, you know, he doesn't have the direct visual impact of Warhol or Liechtenstein or even Alan Jones, for, for argument's sake. 
but what I thought was interesting was that they gave gave that painting pride of place where the coon's bunny had been mm-hmm. in this sort of shrine to blue chip timeless art and i thought they were really pushing the envelope there but on the other hand it made 52 million now is that a reflection of well finally art history is catching up with edruche or there's just a hell of a lot of money in california it's probably <laughs> a mixture of the two yep um but i think the trend next decade will be uh, the auction house is desperately trying to find blue chip names to replace Bacon, Richter, Warhol and the others. And I think they're struggling at the moment because we're not living in a great period of art, I would say. You can see Margaret's videos from the New York auctions and read all our latest reporting from the salesrooms at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. On the website, you can find the subscription to suit you so that you can read our reporting across multiple platforms. And while there, you can also subscribe for free to our daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Click the newsletter link at the top right of our homepage. And do check out our monthly newsletter called Market Eye with comment and analysis every month from our market experts in London and New York. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and if you've enjoyed it, please rate or review it on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David also does the editing. Thanks to Louisa and Anselm, to Maggie and Scott, and thank you for listening. Join us next week when we'll be looking at Dora Maar and Jan Howarth. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.